0: With the study of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, and now we are in the last major division of the Sutta which is called Dhammanupassana, the contemplation, according to this translation, the contemplation of mental objects, or the contemplation of phenomena. And as I explained last time, this division of the sutta has five sections and the first of those five sections is the section on the five hindrances, the pancha nivarana. And last last time I explained the section on sensual desire which is the first hindrance Kama Chanda and now the same basic method or pattern is applied to each of the other four hindrances the second hindrance is called in Pali Vyapada, or Vyapada. And that is sometimes translated as ill will. And this includes all negative states of mind or negative evaluations of an object or negative responses. to situations and to persons, anger, ill will, hatred, resentment, antagonism. And so, when any state of ill will arises, then the meditator notes that it's present. He becomes aware that there is ill will in me. There is anger in me. He doesn't identify with the anger and ill will and think now I have become angry, I have become irritated, I have become resentful but he just recognizes that that there is this mental phenomenon of ill will which has arisen then when that ill will fades away and ceases then one knows That there is no ill will in me. Or else, if after a long time ill will doesn't arise at all, then one also might become aware simply that there is no ill will in me, no anger in me. And then we have the same pattern for understanding the causal or conditional arising of the hindrance he knows how the arising of the non-arisen ill will comes to be he knows how the abandoning of the arisen anger comes to be and he knows how the non arising in the future of the abandoned anger or ill will comes to be (coughs) okay so we have three statements here okay now first we take the first statement (laughs) that he knows how the arising of the non-arisen ill will or anger comes to be. And the Buddha explains elsewhere in the suttas, he explains what is the special cause for the arising of ill will and anger. If you remember last time I said in when the Buddha explains the special cause for the arising of sensual desire, he says that it comes about through unwise or careless attention to the beautiful or the agreeable aspect of things. What's called nimitta, the beautiful aspect or appearance of things. In this case, it's just the opposite. There's something which is called (coughs) patika nimitta, which might be translated very literally as the sign of the repulsive or repugnant, or more freely as, you could say, the repugnant aspect of things, the disagreeable aspect of things. And it's through unwise attention to that aspect of things that anger (coughs) and ill will arise. That's a very, the general cause. One can see, for example, if If you find that there are certain people that irritate you, that cause you to become irritated, angry, upset, you see that there are certain qualities of those persons, certain ways they behave, that the mind focuses upon Or sometimes these ways of behavior or disagreeable qualities impose themselves on the mind. But then the mind eventually fixes upon these qualities of these people, their ways of action, and the mind dwells on that. And by dwelling upon it, then anger and ill will, malice, enmity arise. Again, there can be certain just objective situations that one finds disagreeable. (coughs) And it's when the mind fixes upon that disagreeable aspect of these situations that ill will, anger, or mental discomfort arise. And so these people who are disagreeable and these external situations that are disagreeable, generally, these can't be changed very much. I mean, perhaps to a limited extent, we can change the way other people behave or we cannot change the external environment. But there are limitations to our ability to do so. And in such a case, to overcome ill will and resentment, what we have to do is to change our attitude towards these things. And we first change our attitude by changing the way the mind turns to these situations, the way the mind attends to them or considers them. And that leads us into the second aspect of this conditional structure. That is, he knows how the abandoning of the arisen anger comes to be. That is, he knows what kind of Methods can be used to overcome anger when it arises. And within the context of satipatthana practice, the method which is recommended is simply to note the anger or the ill will when it arises. by noting it just observing it with mindfulness then one creates a kind of barrier between yourself your mind and the ill will as I said several times in the past all of these defilements work can only work when they are working behind the mind, you know, from when they're working behind the stage. When you turn the spotlight on them, then they just become very meek and humble and flash an embarrassed smile, (laughs) and then tiptoe off the stage. (laughs) <laughs> so if you note the ill will when it arises if it is persisting then one just keeps on noting a few times then you disconnect your, your own mind from the ill will you make it an object and just watch it and as you watch it then it fades away and disappears but if ill will and anger become or have become very stubborn and persistent traits of one's character then the buddha recommends as the most effective way to overcome ill will is the practice of metta bhavana that's the development of loving kindness this is especially the method to use in regards to other persons, when other persons are the generally the cause for the arising of anger and ill will. So this can be done as a specific meditation exercise, where you sit down and then visualize first yourself and then wish, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be free from all suffering. Then when the mind gets softened with feelings of loving kindness towards oneself, then one thinks of first a person that one respects and admires then a person who is very close to oneself then like a very dear friend then a neutral person somebody who one has no particular feelings to then after the mind gets softened in practicing loving kindness to these people then one can direct the mind towards those persons who arouse feelings of enmity. One can consider that just as I want to be well and happy, so these persons also are exactly the same. They want to be well. They want to be happy and just as nobody wants to undergo suffering so these persons also want to be free from suffering and then to strengthen the sense of identification with others one can consider that I myself am always thinking I, I, I. So my world always centers around the idea of I. In the same way, for everybody else, their world centers around the sense of I or I am. And so if one considers that everybody is exactly alike in that respect, then one can see that it's just through (laughs) almost a play of chance, of chance circumstances that I'm thinking I in regards to this particular personality whereas Mr. Smith is thinking I In regard to his particular personality but what's common to all of us is that we are thinking (laughs) I, I or I am in regard to our own particular personality and for that reason we all want to be well, to be happy and we should consider that everybody else is in exactly the same situation. Okay, so that's just very sketchy treatment of the way to develop metta as a specific meditative exercise. But also in day-to-day life also, when anger and ill will arise towards particular people, then one should use these same types of reflections. Like if anger is arising towards this person, Mr. Jones, Mr. De Silva, then you think, well, I want to be well and happy. Now he too is just a human being like me. So he too wishes, doesn't want to become ill, doesn't want to suffer from poverty, from afflictions. In that way, even if one just brings in such thoughts momentarily from time to time in day-to-day life, gradually they will replace the thoughts of anger and resentment. Then when there are people who are just very malicious, very aggressive towards oneself, in such situations the Buddha where one finds it really difficult to arouse feelings of loving kindness towards such a person then the Buddha recommends that one do the reflection on what's called the principle that each one inherits his own karma that somebody is repeatedly nasty towards me And I try to be kind to him, try to be nice But the more I try the nastier he becomes And so then I become upset and angry and tempted to retaliate In that case the Buddha suggests one reflects on the law of karma that If this person is going to be cruel and malicious to me, then that is his karma. And he will eventually meet with the results of those evil actions. I mean, I've tried everything I could to change him, to alter his attitudes, but he just persists. Then, one just has to look at it with equanimity, and consider that he'll reap the results of his karma and if I were to retaliate in any way to try to get vengeance then I'm just creating bad karma for myself karma that will eventually come back to me and bring harm and suffering to me and so if I want to protect myself for the future then I should just try to bear the situation with patience. In fact, I can apply the law of karma to the situation and consider that the reason why this person is treating me in such malicious, spiteful ways is because of my own past karma. That I have sown seeds of unwholesome deeds, maybe in previous existences, and now they're coming to fruition. And this person is just an instrument of my own karma. And In fact, one could even reverse the situation or turn the whole situation on its head by thinking that this person who's so cruel and nasty and mean to me is really a tremendous help to me because if I'm going to develop the Buddha's path, I have to really be able to perfect the quality of patience and if everybody is very kind and sweet and helpful to me then i'm not really developing i don't really meet opportunities to develop patience and so maybe i might think that i'm becoming very patient but unless somebody puts me throws me into the water then I don't really, it's like reading a book on swimming (laughs) you know you you read all of the explanations of all the different breaststroke and what butterfly whatever but whenever (laughs) you put your toe into the water the water is too cool and so you never learn to swim but somebody pushes (laughs) you into the water then you have the opportunity to learn how to swim (laughs) so this person who's very nasty and mean to me is really the one who's like my teacher who's helping me, teaching me how to develop patience (laughs) and so one should to avoid becoming angry and upset with that person you think wow I should really be very grateful to that person since he's giving me wonderful rare opportunities to develop patience. (laughs) Okay, so those are some methods for overcoming ill will. In fact, in the Visuddhimagga, in the section on the development of the Brahmaviharas, it says that when all the methods for overcoming a particular hostile person fell, then the best method is to, or the the best alternative that remains is to give that person a gift, since often giving a gift is able to transform attitudes. Okay, so these are some of the methods for the abandoning of the arisen anger that has come into where he knows okay methods for abandoning the arisen anger and then he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned anger comes comes to be <coughs> And this is the attainment of which stage of the path by which all anger and ill will is abandoned? The Anagami. That's the third of the four stages of enlightenment. The path of the non-returner. Okay, then I'll ask if there's any questions on this section that I've just explained, before we go further. Sometimes animals also can be asked to have a nice vegetable garden. Yeah. The next morning when I, I see you come and when I, so what I'd like to do, get people there. Excuse me? Then I feel as a complete word there, I don't know. I mean, one, naturally one will feel, in that situation, sort yeah. of frustrated in one's attempts to grow the vegetables. And one should take measures to prevent animals from getting into the garden <laughs> with, without causing them injury. But one shouldn't have feelings of ill will towards the animal. <laughs> then I can make that patience <laughs> 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 One could do that, but also in such situations you have to be practical and find some, some way to to keep the animals out of the garden. <laughs> <laughs> did,
1: did the Buddha
0: himself occasionally? Uh, proper reverence towards the alms food and many things for granted and was there occasion when you would feel you would have to scold them you would scold them with irritation not with anger or irritation because in the Buddha all of these unwholesome mental states they've all been cut off and abandoned so that the unwholesome states themselves don't arise but there have been various situations where say the monks don't behave in proper ways, then the Buddha would speak to them sternly. So there's not anger or ill will in his mind, but mentally, say, he's displeased with the Sangha, or with the behavior of certain monks. But it's not... A state of ill will or anger or irritation, but it's just the situation in which he has to lay down the line and sometimes even speak sternly to particular monks and give them admonitions. Okay, any any other questions? Okay, then we'll go on to the <coughs> next section, which is on sloth and torpor. <coughs> this is called in Pali. You like to have the Pali words here? Those, some of these who? Yeah. Okay, everybody who's taking notes knows it already. Okay, it's Tina, called Tina Mita. What's Tina, we could explain as a kind of dullness or stiffness of the mind. And Tina Mita is torpor or drowsiness these two states, there's a very slight difference between them but they're so similar the way they affect the mind that the Buddha has grouped them together as if they were one hindrance and so when sloth and torpor or dullness and drowsiness arise then one knows there are sloth and torpor in me. Or when sloth and torpor are not present, then one knows there are no sloth and torpor in me. Okay, so this is a factor which arises particularly in the context of meditation times, like the mind is not able to to empower itself. And say, the practice is not bringing any kinds of exhilarating re- results. One has a rather, perhaps dull subject to begin with, like following the in-and-out breath the rise and fall of the abdomen and because of the simplicity of this object and the monotony of the attention, gradually the mind might become dullish, drowsy, sleepy. And then one starts to lose track of the object and perhaps even to fall asleep. In such a case, one becomes aware as quickly, as early as possible, that sloth and torpor have arisen. And sometimes just that averting to the sloth and torpor is enough to dispel, to dispel it. And then when sloth and torpor have faded and disappeared, then one will note that sloth and torpor are no longer present. Or if the mind has been continually very alert and awake, then one might just note briefly that there is no sloth and torpor in me. Then one knows how the arising of the unarisen sloth and torpor comes to be. One knows how the abandoning of the arisen sloth and torpor comes to be and one knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned sloth and torpor comes to be okay in this case first one knows how the arising of the non-arisen sloth and torpor comes to be. And the Buddha mentions as the special cause for the arising of sloth and torpor unwise attention to states of boredom, lethargy, and sluggishness of the mind and this (laughs) I have to admit that I found this something of a little bit of a problem since (laughs) it seems to be saying that sloth and torpor seem to be roughly equivalent to boredom, lethargy and sluggishness of mind so if unwise attention to sloth and torpor is the cause for the arising of sloth and torpor, then it seems to be that one has created a vicious cycle <laughs> and it's hard to know how to break out of it. But I saw a good explanation of this by a Burmese monk who said what is meant by unwise attention to states of boredom, lethargy, and sluggishness of mind is simply not being aware of them when they arise. So sloth, or we say some degree of boredom, some degree of lethargy, some degree of sluggishness of mind, this tends naturally to arise Particularly, as I said earlier, when one is using a repetitive object of, of concentration, an object which one has to attend to in the same pattern over and over again. When the attention or the mindfulness is not really following that object very carefully and closely, then gaps open up in the awareness and because of those gaps opening up then the opportunity comes for some degree of boredom or mental sluggishness to set in. Now if one is highly alert and one notes that boredom or sluggishness as soon as it sets in then it will be dispelled but if one doesn't attend to it it will gather momentum until it builds up force and then it becomes full scale sloth and torpor Tina midam. And so when one knows that the arising of unarisen sloth and torpor comes about because one doesn't pay careful attention to these states of boredom and lethargy when they arise at a very subtle level then one knows immediately that one way to bring about the abandoning of the arisen sloth and torpor is to attend to it when it arises. So when the mind is starting to get clouded over by sloth and torpor, then one can attend to that sloth and torpor. Just make a note of it. And just making a note might be sufficient to dispel it. If the sloth and torpor is persistent, then one can just persist in observing it. One notes with the mind, Turns the mind upon itself and just hones in on it, homes in on it, observing dull mind, dull mind, or dullness, dullness, drowsiness, drowsiness. Always trying to arouse one's attention repeatedly, again and again. If this doesn't work, then there are certain alternatives that the Buddha recommends. Particularly, he recommends the stirring up of energy as one means. Whereas actually the main means of dispelling sloth and torpor is stirring up the energy. And one method which is taught by the Burmese teachers of Vipassana for getting rid of sloth and torpor by stirring up energy is to increase the objects of attention within the process of meditation. One of the causes, as I said, for the setting in of sloth and torpor is boredom with a very repetitive, monotonous object like just following, say, the rise and fall of the abdomen. So one way to get rid of that sloth and torpor is to have several objects of attention within, say, the act of in and out breathing. So one method recommended by the Burmese teachers is, for example, one is breathing in and following the rise, then one is breathing out following the fall, rise, fall, rise, fall. Through that, the drowsiness is coming in. What one would do is to add a different object just at the interval between the rise and the fall. Just at that split second where the whole process comes to a halt, one might just for a moment become aware of the whole form of the body. So one is observing the rising, then at the end of the rising, just for a split second, one is aware of the body sitting, then one is following the falling movement. When the falling movement comes to an end, then one might become aware of a touch sensation, say the touch of the backside against the cushion. So then one becomes aware of touching then there takes place rising at the end of the rising aware of sitting then the falling takes place falling then one becomes aware of touching in this way instead of just having rising falling rising falling one has rising sitting falling touching rising, sitting, falling, touching. And so by increasing the number of objects, then the mind has to be extra alert, since if it tries to get away with just nonchalantly following the routine of rising, falling, rising, falling, it's going to be missing these split-second objects at the end of each of the two main phases. And so when one does this, maybe five minutes, ten minutes, that special effort of being alert for those split-second intervals awakens and alerts the mind. If this doesn't work, Another remedy which is recommended is to abandon sitting meditation altogether and to do the walking meditation, chankama meditation. Becoming aware of left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot or else breaking the step into the different phases This practice of walking meditation requires the mind to be alert because the body has to be active. And so if it's done, particularly at a brisk rate, if one tries to do it very, very slowly, with very minute divisions to the walking, then also it's easy for the sloth and torpor to persist (laughs) And if one isn't capital, then one might just collapse from the walking (laughs) position. (laughs) But if one is forcing oneself to walk briskly, back and forth, just becoming aware left, right, left, right, then the mind gets energized. Okay, there are a variety of other methods which are mentioned elsewhere in the suttas and the commentaries, but I think this should be sufficient. And it's always said that as the last alternative, if one is really overcome by sloth and torpor, then one can lie down and just, if it's during the middle of the day, just take a little nap just five, ten minutes, sometimes that's enough. And then one gets up and one is refreshed. Okay, and then he knows how the non-arising and the future of the abandoned sloth and torpor comes to be. That is, how the complete eradication of sloth and torpor takes place. And that occurs when? This is the complete abandoning so that it can never arise again in the future. With the attainment of our hushas. only with the fourth and final stage of realization, is sloth and torpor completely eradicated? Okay, now we come to the next section, which is what's called agitation and scruples, or we might call it restlessness and worry. The Pali is udacca kukucha. ordinarily intended by worry in English usage. Kukucha, which is often translated as worry, which I follow here, has the specific meaning of worries which have been committed in the past, it's sometimes also rendered as remorse. So we can call it restlessness and worry, or restlessness and remorse. And again the method of practice works on the same principles when there is restlessness and worry when they arise within then one becomes aware there are well there is restlessness and worry in me or when then when one observes and notes the restlessness and the worry after a few notings they might fade away then one becomes aware that there is no restlessness and worry in me that restlessness and worry have ceased or if after some time there's been no restlessness and worry then one might just make a note that the mind has been free from restlessness and worry. So that's the basic method of practice. Then the Buddha says that the meditator knows how the arising of the non-arisen restlessness and worry comes to be. He knows how the abandoning of the arisen restlessness and worry comes to be. And he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned restlessness and worry comes to be. Okay, as to the first point, the Buddha explains that restlessness and worry arise through unwise attention or careless attention to something that causes distress or agitation in the mind. Again, this seems to imply a vicious cycle, like if something that's causing distress or agitation has arisen in the mind, then there's already restlessness and worry. (laughs) But I think what's intended is that sometimes when one is trying to, to fix the mind on some particular object, In meditation an object of awareness then after the mind has become or when the mind is in the process of becoming concentrated or after one has achieved a certain degree of concentration then suddenly out of nowhere some thought some idea will present itself to the mind clamor for attention. And if one doesn't attend to that intruding idea wisely, that is by noting it, or by just by observing it, but instead, one lets the awareness slip and allows that intruding thought to take over, then that thought will trigger a whole series of restless and agitated and worried thoughts. And so these thoughts then proliferate in a kind of almost endless process, seemingly endless process, until the mind is completely overwhelmed by agitation and distress and worry and so one knows that unarisen restlessness and worry come to be by carelessly attending to this disturbing object which has presented itself to the mind By knowing that, one also knows that the way to bring about the abandoning of the arisen agitation and worry is whenever such a disturbing object presents itself to the mind, some disturbing, distressing idea, then one just notes that idea treats it as a bare object and lets it go or one can turn the attention to the restlessness and worry in the mind itself make that restless agitated mind the object so that one is observing the restless agitated mind just flowing by one sequence, one thought after another in sequence. It's just as if a person was standing by the bank of a river and the river is flowing by and he's watching the water of the river flow by. Then he's separate from the river. He's not getting carried away by the current of the river but he's just standing on the bank, watching the water stream by. And so, when restlessness and worry have arisen in the mind, then one turns the attention on to that restless, agitated mind, just watching the one thought after another flow by. And as one is watching these thoughts, again, They get drained of their power till they become just feeble, little thoughts, barely restless, following one another. Then the space between them will increase till that sequence will break off and then the mind will be able to settle and become concentrated again. But when restlessness and worry arise repeatedly in the minds that they become, when recognize them as persistent traits in one's own mental makeup, and one wants to use a direct antidote to them, then the best antidote is something which will help the mind settle and become calm and concentrated. Many Buddhist teachers recommend the attention to the breath since the breath, if it's attended to very closely, the breath tends to have a very slow and calm rhythm. And so when the mind becomes agitated, Just attending to the breath through the whole body will tend to have a calming and settling effect. I think what what happens sometimes is if one is trying to attend to the breath at a very narrow region like around the nostrils then restlessness and worry might arise. When that happens, one can just let the attention broaden till it encompasses the whole body for a few a few minutes, feeling the breath, the rise and fall of the abdomen through the whole bre- through the whole body, as one is breathing in and out. or else one could turn the attention to an object which gives a special sense of calm and confidence for example the image of a buddha say sitting in the samadhi posture very calm and tranquil when the mind is especially if the mind is repeated or disturbed by some persisting thought which is troubling one then one can just visualize the Buddha very radiant, very tranquil and then that has a calming and settling effect on the mind and then he knows how the non-arising in the future of the abandoned restlessness and worry comes to be. That is, one understands how the complete final eradication of restlessness and worry comes to be. And when does that take place? <laughs> Actually, there's a trick in that question. <laughs> yeah, this is according to the Abhidhamma teaching. There's distinction between restlessness and worry or remorse. That they're both very similar because they both cause disturbance or distress in the mind. But they're still two separate states. And remorse is cut off at the third stage, the stage of non-returning. That's because there's a technical reason. Because remorse arises in those cheetahs or states of consciousness, which are associated with ill will, or anger, or resentment. There's a kind of regret about one's previous actions and that's some degree of ill will. And so for the anagami, the non-returner, he's completely eliminated ill will and so there's no more remorse that can arise. But agitation, some degree of agitation or restlessness, that persists all the way up till the last stage stage of arahatship. So even the anagami can have a very, very subtle residue of little restlessness or little disturbance from time to time in the mind. Okay, then we come to the fifth hindrance, which is doubt. The chicky cha in Pali. And doubt here <coughs> <coughs> means has a specific meaning of doubt regarding the triple gem and doubt about the training or doubt about one's own ability to fulfill the training, to follow the path. So this can be doubt about the Buddha. Last week somebody said that (laughs) since we're, we've been, he's been a Buddhist all his life and he speaks for many of the other people here that it's impossible for us to have any doubt as a hindrance but there are very subtle levels of doubt which only come up when one is trying to completely purify the mind so when that is happening then these subtle doubts might come about whether the Buddha was really or whether there really is such a thing as an enlightened one whether the Dharma, the doctrine taught by the Buddha is the true teaching the absolute truth maybe somebody who is a, a scholar who's been trained in the critical method of scholarship might start to doubt how much of these texts really come to us from the Buddha and how much has been added by later generations (laughs) of monks. And then somebody might have doubt about the Sangha, whether there there is really, there have really been those who have followed the path and have reached the levels of, any of the levels of enlightenment They might have doubt about whether the training, the practice is really effective in general or doubts about whether they are really capable of following this practice. So these are doubts that come up. Sometimes they're coarse doubts, sometimes they are subtle doubts. Doubt here doesn't include doubt about things you know, outside of this particular sphere. Doubt about whether it will be possible for man in the future to travel beyond the solar system. <laughs> doubt about whether this theory or this version of the quantum theory is correct or that version is correct. Those doubts are not relevant to this particular context. Okay, so he, when doubt is present, he knows that it is present. When it's not present, he knows that it is not present. Also, he knows how the arising of the unarisen doubt comes to be. And here the Buddha explains the special strong cause for the arising of doubt is unwise attention to things that cause doubt. And this refers specifically, I have to say, to the situation of one who is trying to train his mind in the practice of satipatthana. In those situations, one should be making the attempt to get rid of doubt by noting it when it arises, and by not giving attention to those matters which cause the doubt to arise. So those are means for abandoning doubt when it arises within the situation of training the mind in meditation. But outside this context, the Buddha does not say that one should not give attention to things that cause doubt that one should just accept what he teaches, what the tradition teaches, that one should just accept it with trusting faith. But rather in those situations the Buddha says that one should investigate and inquire in order to resolve one's doubts. And in that case, Even if one is practicing meditation and some really persistent doubt comes up that one can't resolve simply by noting it or by turning the attention away from the object, then one should make an effort to clarify one's doubts by either consulting the scriptural texts or by discussing the doubts with somebody who might be qualified to give elucidating explanations. Okay, so those are ways in which the abandoning of arisen doubt come about comes about, and then he knows how The non-arising in the future of the abandoned doubt comes to be. That takes place at what stage? The er abandoning of the... I'm sorry. The non-arising in the future of the abandoned doubt. That's the complete eradication of doubt. with stream entry, sota because the stream, one who has reached stream entry has seen for himself the truth of the Dhamma with direct insight, direct vision and so he knows that the Buddha is the enlightened one he knows that the Dhamma is the true teaching on the real nature of things. He knows that there have been those who have reached the planes of the enlightened ones, and he knows that this path will lead to the final goal, even though he still has maybe a long way to go, but he has no doubt at all about any of these matters. Okay, and then the Buddha applies to this scheme, or applies to this subject, the five hindrances, that same scheme that comes at the end of all of these sections of Santipatthana. He lives contemplating mental objects and mental objects internally. That is, he recognizes the five hindrances when they arise within himself or he lives contemplating mental objects and mental objects externally that is just for brief moments his mind will turn to the thought that these five hindrances arise in other persons or else he lives contemplating mental objects and mental objects internally and externally that is with the mind going back and forth from the one to the other then he might um, he lives contemplating origination factors and mental objects he lives contemplating dissolution factors and mental objects or he lives contemplating origination and dissolution factors and mental objects this we can understand in two ways either in the sense of knowing what are the causal factors for the arising of the five hindrances, those are the origination factors, and what are the factors or conditions that cause their abandoning, those are the dissolution factors. Or else we could understand this to mean that he contemplates the arising and passing away of these five hindrances as they take place from moment to moment in the mind. One will just focus on any of the five hindrances that's arisen and watch it arise, pass away, arising, passing away until the whole sequence breaks off or his mindfulness is established with the thought that mental objects exist. That is one just considers the five hindrances, just observes them as bare mental phenomena which might be present, just momentary states or mental factors. And thus he lives detached and clings. And by observing them, contemplating in that way, that leads to further knowledge and mindfulness. And thus he lives detached and clings to nothing in the world. And in this way, a monk lives contemplating mental objects and mental objects in regard to the five hindrances. Okay, that will be the main part of the discussion. Now if there is any questions then please feel free to ask them. But please don't be shy either to ask them person has a sixth child they take them to the hospital mm. uh, the hospital seems to be treating the case with incompetence mm-hmm. 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 how could one at that point remove themselves and, and try to calm themselves down what's needed is to get people moving to try to get some attention to you know to, to bring some pressure to bear <laughs> <laughs> With anger and Excuse me. With anger and they come, and of course, in situations like that, it's uh, understandable and excusable that they will come. And so, one shouldn't, if they do come, one shouldn't condemn oneself for giving rise to them. At the same time, we recognize that we would be better off, and perhaps even more effective, if we can make a firm exertion, but without being overcome by the agitation and distress. And so what one might do, say, you're sitting there with a sick child, and people are not the hospital, workers are not attending. One might pause, observe one's breath for three or four rounds till the mind settles down, then one gets up and acts, and one can speak firmly. Maybe if one thinks that the display of of what seems to be anger is necessary to get them (laughs) moving, one might even make a display. Well, maybe one should be a little cautious. Sometimes, sometimes even a friendly attitude will get them to work more effectively. If one shows anger, then they might want to be spiteful. And they'll deliberately delay. At any rate, it's possible to act effectively in the world without being driven by restlessness and by distress. And some of these methods will also enable one. In fact, this raises an important point that I should make, which I I don't think I've been making or placing enough emphasis on, and that is that The practice of many of these methods that come in the Satipatthana Sutta are not only for situations when one is sitting in the formal meditation period, but also these are ways that can be used to deal with the mind within uh, situations of day-to-day living. So can we call this again? comprehension of the mental mental phenomena, uh, like physical activities, uh, in the Definitely, yeah, there is some, in fact, the, what's called sampa which is translated clear comprehension, that is definitely working here yeah. when we have this understanding how the arising of the non-arisen such and such comes to be how the abandoning of the arisen such and such comes to be, that's clear comprehension. In fact, the verb used here is pajanati, which is understand, which it's related to sampajanya is the noun, which it comes from the same verbal root. Well also clear comprehension would be involved there, yeah. But I was thinking especially particularly in this where one knows the causes for the arising and the abandoning. But also when that those mental states exist and one becomes aware of them as just existing, then that will also be a type of clear comprehension. Yes. I don't think that Do not believe that because it's in the teaching of scriptures. Yeah, yeah. So does it mean that scriptures mean Ram. Excuse me? Does it mean that do not believe that because it is in the Ram? Scriptures mean Ram. You mean the scriptures of the Buddha scriptures? It's May it said that do not believe just because it is in the scriptures. Yeah, that is one of the things which I said. In the case of the Kalamas, the Kalamas <coughs> were not yet followers of the Buddha. And so the Buddha said, and they would, many teachers, religious teachers would come to visit them and each one would teach his doctrine as being the supreme teaching and he would attack the doctrines of other teachers. And so the Kalamas were very confused and they didn't know what to believe, who to trust. And so they came to the Buddha and they explained their problem. Then the Buddha didn't say, well, forget about those people, you can believe me. (laughs) Instead the Buddha said that doubt has arisen about matters over which it is right to have doubt. Then he said, Don't depend on, he mentions about 12 things, including the scriptures of others. Don't depend on authoritative tradition, hearsay, purely logical reasoning. Don't even go just out of trust and impressive teachers but you should examine things for yourself and what you find you can believe after examination that you should accept and what you find that you have to reject through examination that you should reject. So that's the kind of approach for clearing up doubt when there are genuine occasions for doubt. Okay, then maybe we will stop for today, and then continue next Thursday. Next Thursday. Okay.